Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump asking another state not to kick him off the ballot like Colorado and Maine did. It's a ruling that could come at any moment now. We're standing by for that. Also, Ukraine reeling tonight from the largest Russian bombardment since the early days of the war. More than 150 missiles fired in total across the country as President Biden says that President Putin must be stopped. And you can't make this one up, or I guess maybe AI can. Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, says he didn't know that he gave his lawyer bogus cases that were then submitted to a judge. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. We have the latest update tonight in the battle for the ballot. Donald Trump is now urging Oregon Supreme Court to dismiss a case that's attempting to remove him from the ballot there as well. His lawyers arguing that Congress, not the courts, should enforce the Constitution's insurrectionist ban. Oregon's high court could issue this ruling at any time, and this comes in the wake of Colorado and Maine's historic decisions to disqualify Trump from the primary ballot pending appeals. Appeals that we know, we are told by sources tonight, Trump's legal team is expected to file on Tuesday. We're told that the justices in Colorado who ruled in the majority to bar Trump from the ballot are now being inundated with threats after making that call. So is Maine's secretary of state who made her decision announcing it just last night. This is what she told me earlier this evening. We have received threatening communications. Those are unacceptable. I certainly worry about the safety of people that I love, people around me, and people who are charged with protecting me and working alongside me. We are a nation of laws, and that's what's really important. And so I've been laser focused on that obligation to uphold the Constitution. Here to help us make sense of the constitutional confusion that's at play here, Shan Wu, former federal prosecutor, and Ashraf Ahmed, a constitutional law expert and associate professor at Columbia Law School. Glad to have both of you here tonight. Shan, when it comes to Oregon, we're now talking about another state, another ballot battle. A key question here, because each one has been different with Oregon, is the dispute over who decides if Trump can be on the ballot. The state's or, or Congress. And Trump's legal team ha- has cited Oregon's Secretary of State saying, who I should note is a Democrat, saying she doesn't have the power uh, she believes to make the decision when it comes to the primary ballots. What are you expecting that ruling to look like and how could it affect what we've seen overall? Well, I think it's really up to the states, uh, not Congress. I mean, th- that language Trump's lawyers are using, it's up to Congress to enforce the 14th Amendment. I mean, on its face, that doesn't make any sense. Congress generally doesn't enforce things. Justice Department enforces 
criminal violations and courts enforce or rule on rulings. Uh, it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. And the states do have different processes. And to me, that's the way it should be. I mean, 50 different states, 50 different rules. There could be 50 different outcomes. Uh, and when it does reach um, the Supreme Court, if it does, likely it will, uh, I think they have to be careful not to overreach. Uh, there may be a temptation to want to establish some sort of national uniformity, but the last thing they do is to need to do is to overreach, which I think will even further hurt their credibility. Well, and Ash, when it comes to what we're expecting on Tuesday, these appeals, not just for the main decision that we got yesterday, but also the Colorado decision. I mean, what are the arguments from the Trump team look like in that? Just saying that it's not their decision? Because, I mean, obviously those are different arguments. You've got a Supreme Court ruling in one of them and a Secretary of State's decision in the other. Yeah, I mean, I suspect the Trump uh, team is going to throw the kitchen sink at whichever, um, you know, uh, state court they're appealing in. Uh, it's going to depend from state to state. So, for instance, in Colorado, you might see them bringing up um, due process arguments, arguments about the fact that the process um, was deficient, um, no ability to subpoena um, and the like. Um, elsewhere, you'll probably see arguments like what Shan just, discuss, uh, just discussed, which is um, arguments about Congress's role being primary. Um, you might also see them bringing up First Amendment defenses. Um, again, they're going to make every single claim they possible and see where the chips fall. Well, and when we look at this, you know, one of the things that we could maybe see in Maine, Shan, is this uh, request that came from the Trump team, which Shanna Bellows, who is the main secretary of state that you just heard from there, uh, where they wanted her to recuse herself, the Trump team, because they were citing this social media post that she had. But she told me that actually she believed they needed to, to make that before the hearing happened, according to Maine law. This is what else she said about why she wouldn't have recused if they had made it in time. They actually did not ask me to recuse myself until after the hearing. Maine law required me to issue a decision. And uh, should they have made that in a timely way, uh, I would not have recused myself because of my obligations, but also because my political affiliation and my personal views of January 6th have no bearing on this case. She had called January 6th an insurrection. She had said that Trump should be impeached. Shan, when they do appeal this to the Superior Court in Maine, do they take this into consideration? Uh, they can take it into consideration. Uh, I'm not an expert on the Maine administrative law or the Maine law, but generally to me, recusal is a pretty weak uh, form of rules because it's going to be up to the initial presiding officer, whether administrative or judge, to decide if they have some sort of conflict, if they don't think that they can be impartial. And if they decide that they can be, absent something very egregious, uh, I don't think that's going to get overturned judicially. Okay, that's, that's an interesting note because that's kind of the only complaint that we had heard from them uh, until she had this ruling. But Ash, as, as you look at this, you know, it's very clear all of this is going to come down to the, the Supreme Court. Uh, we don't know yet whether or not they are going to take this up, but it seems almost like the pressure is just building on them. Uh, what do you expect their decision to look like when they do uh, take this up in the sense of how, what are they deciding on? How big of the scope is that decision? Is it a yes or no? Or are there multiple paths that they could paths that they could potentially take here? Great. Um, I mean, it's an enormous decision, um, and they almost certainly will have to take it up, especially given how um, different uh, state governments, state courts, and state secretaries are basically forcing their hand. Um, 
my instinct is that they are going to try to keep Trump on the ballot, not because of, let's say, baldly partisan motives, but probably out of self-preservation. Um, this is the sort of most momentous decision they'd have to make since Bush v. Gore when it comes to an election. And so, you know, they have particular procedural outs they might be able to take um, that sort of kick the can down. So, for instance, I brought up Colorado and due process arguments and the like. Or they might go and say, um, um, no, actually, we're going to follow the one, you know, ap appellate court opinion there is on this, which is from the 19th century, which basically takes the position that um, Congress has to implement it. Even though, as I agree with Sean, um, the language of the 14th Amendment certainly doesn't um, lend itself to that reading. Well, I'm glad you brought up that case, Bush v. Gore, because obviously that was one of the most consequential, if not the most, that they've decided when it comes to a modern election. I mean, Shan, that case, when they made that decision, you know, that hurt the Supreme Court. It damaged their standing in voter, some voters' eyes, obviously, who didn't agree with them. Is that something that they would take into account when they're making this decision, if they do make this decision? Well, I think internally, I mean, I doubt we'll ever hear about it, but I mean, since that case, it's gotten far, far worse for them in terms of really this bleed out of their credibility with the public. I think they, the the moderate minds, the sort of institutionalist um, that Chief Justice Roberts is, is certainly going to try to shape something which can preserve their credibility and not look to partisan. Um, as the professor said, this is a tall order. It's a very complex case. Threading the needle isn't easy, um, but you know that's what they get paid the lifetime tenure for, is to find a way that has integrity in terms of the analysis, um, but yet does not venture into areas that look like it's a partisan type of decision. Shan Wu, Ash Ahmed, a lot that we are going to be discussing. Luckily, we have two legal minds here. Thank you both for being here tonight. Good to see you. Of course, when you look at this, there's also a, a political aspect to this. It's undeniable here. And for more on that, I want to bring in the former Biden White House communications director, Kate Bedingfield, also former special assistant to President George W. Bush, Scott Jennings, who is also a former senior advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell. I should note, Scott, when you look at this and, and what the warning kind of has been from people like Chris Christie that that this could turn Trump into a martyr, if this collapses, if it is overturned, by the Supreme Court, these decisions. I mean, do the people who sought to get Trump off the ballot end up potentially politically helping him? Oh, no question. I mean, look, every time he's had an engagement with the legal system, it's helped Trump in the primary. Now, does this help him in the general election? I don't know. But the moment in time we're in where he's fending off uh, Nikki Haley, where he's fending off Ron DeSantis, where he's trying to consolidate that Republican base, these legal challenges are helping Trump. And when you have Chris Christie, who's running the most anti-Trump campaign, saying this is wrong, we need to leave him on the ballot, the voters need to decide, you can see where virtually every Republican is on this, except the most perhaps ardent uh, never-Trump voices, uh, which are very, very few right now in the Republican Party. So yeah, I do think it's helping him. And I think it's helping him look like a victim and, and, and to some degree a martyr. And, and although the people who hate Donald Trump and are never going to vote for him aren't going to feel that way, I got a text message from an old friend of mine this morning. Not a Trump guy. Never been a Trump guy. First thing, first thing it said, they're going to make me vote for Trump again, aren't they? And that was after the main decision. And, you know, you hear this in Republican circles all over. Kate, I mean, obviously you used to work for President Biden. You've invested interest in him being reelected and obviously believe that he should. I mean, what do you make of 
not just a message like that that Scott gets, but but this argument. Should this matter or, or should the people who feel that Trump shouldn't be on the ballot because of January 6th and the role that he played, should they still proceed anyway? Well, I would argue the courts should certainly make their decisions based on uh, the legal parameters and not think about the politics. I don't, you know, there are not a lot of things that Scott Jennings and I agree on, but we do agree on this. It is helping Trump in the Republican primary. I think there's really no question about that. We've seen over the course of the primary as he's uh, dealt with these legal woes. He's only gotten stronger with the Republican base. And, uh, you know, and, and I agree, anything that uh, kind of bolsters his argument that he's the victim, that, you know, his campaign and his potential second term is about retribution, uh, seems to be helping him with Republican voters, where I think it is a much, much murkier question is, is this going to be helpful to him in the general election? I would argue, no. I think uh, the more that his legal troubles are front and center, and the more that these arguments are about him. The more it's about his own personal vendetta, about his idea that he's wrong. You know, we see that moderate voters, general election voters, swing voters have been turned off by that. You see that in the polling uh, now, which certainly shows head to head a really close race, but also pretty consistently shows uh, that independent voters, that swing voters, uh, you know, don't like Trump's legal problems. Uh, and having this be sort of front and center um, in a general election campaign, I think probably gives Joe Biden uh, a good platform to say, you know, do you want this chaos again? Do you want this guy who sits in the White House and thinks only about himself and how he can get revenge on his enemies uh, back in the White House? So I do think this is a backdrop that, uh, you know, I think the sort of knee-jerk reaction right now is, well, this is good for Trump. Large uh, across the course of a general election, I'm not so sure that's true. Scott, you know, there are people who disagree with this decision, maybe on the merits. I mean, we have legal experts, people like Ellie Honig, who think that this was the wrong decision by the main secretary of state. But but disagree or emphatically agree. She told me earlier when we were speaking that she is getting threats because of the decision that she announced yesterday, disqualifying Trump from the ballot in her state, which she feels and we went at length. We talked about the, the criticisms of this, her basis for this. But on just the judgment itself, the fact that she is getting threats, that she's worried about not her safety, she said, but that of the people that she loves, the people who protect her. I mean, what does it say about the reaction from from the Trump base, from the influence, you know, that, that we clearly see that the former president has over his supporters? Well, unfortunately, I think we have seen a rising tide of threats from hyperpartisans uh, in both parties over judicial issues they don't agree with. I mean, ask the United States Supreme Court, ask Brett Kavanaugh, ask Justice Roberts what kind of threats they're getting there. You know, what did it look like when Chuck Schumer went in front of the Supreme Court and threatened all the justices? And lo and behold, they start getting threats. So I denounce all this. I think it's terrible. I think you can disagree with politicians. I think you can be mad about things. And I think the way you solve your problems in this country is to vote. And I think that's ultimately what people are mad about is that hey, I want to vote. I want to <laughs> express myself. And now this person's telling me I, I can't even vote for the person that I want to vote for. But the reality is these threats are wrong. All Republicans and all Democrats should denounce it. And nobody should indulge. Nobody should indulge these ideas that threatening, uh, particularly the, the judiciary, people in a position to make judgments on the law. This is not how you get your way in this country. And it's wrong. And it really ought to stop. Kate, what do you make of it? I, I agree. Again, it's twice in, in one segment. I totally agree, <laughs> agree with Scott Jennings. I mean, I yes, I think that the rise of this kind of um, uh, like these personal attacks, this kind of uh, threats of violence against public officials, obviously incredibly dangerous. I think 
Um, I, you know, I do think it is damaging uh, on both sides, in part because it sort of, again, it, it just it causes voters in the middle who aren't engaged in politics every day and thinking about, you know, which team they're on. It causes those people to tune out as well. And that's another sort of dangerous byproduct, I think, of the heated rhetoric on both sides. Obviously, uh, you know, these kinds of, of threats and threats to uh, personal safety, I would argue, come from Donald Trump in a way that is unprecedented and terrifying. Um, but I think that when uh, the extremes on both sides get uh, incredibly um, uh, vitriolic, uh, it turns off people in the middle. And we need people in the middle to vote. We need people who uh, who may not necessarily feel like the process uh, you know, is about one team versus the other to sit down, to look at who they want leading their country and to go out and vote. And so in addition to obviously the incredibly dangerous rhetoric and the personal threats, which we've seen play out just most recently in Georgia and other places, uh, which are awful. Uh, the other kind of unintended byproduct of this is that it, it causes people yeah. uh, to turn away from, from democracy and to turn away from believing their vote counts and matters. And that is a really, really dangerous thing long term. And the, I mean, can I, can I just comment on that? I, well, I, I, actually, just, I totally agree with what she just said. That, that last piece, people turning away from democracy and turning to mobs, that, that's when we get off the rail. I, I could not agree with what she said there at the end more than that. That, that was well, a great And point. when you look at that, Scott and Kate, I mean, we're in, it's not even January yet of the election year and the hyper-partisanship, you know, the extremist uh, views of this and the responses to it, like threats to the Secretary of State. I mean, it's kind of concerning to think about what the next several months could shape up to look like. And Scott, when you look at even just the political calendar, what just the month of January 2024 looks like alone, I mean, it is calendar chaos. I know you've advised political campaigns, obviously, repeatedly. When you look at this and you see all it's kind of almost dizzying to look at this calendar because we've got the deadline on January 4th for Trump's legal team to to have this appeal. We know they're expected to do so on Tuesday. Then you've got the others here, Trump facing oral arguments for trial issues in Jack Smith's trial, which is put on pause, the closing arguments in the New York civil trial, the trial to determine damages in E. Jean Carroll's second lawsuit against him. I mean, all of that's not enough. You know, obviously you've got the Iowa caucuses on the 15th, the New Hampshire primary just a little over a week later. I mean, what do you make of a calendar like that just getting started? We haven't even getting, gotten close to, to what could be maybe the Republican nomination and then the general election. Well, the piece of that you mentioned that I am most intrigued by is what could happen in March. That's when the Jack Smith trial is supposed to start, although it's on hold. And obviously that's when Super Tuesday is. And when, in theory, uh, Donald Trump or somebody, but probably Donald Trump, could be putting away uh, the Republican nomination at that time. If that trial gets delayed, when does it get kicked back to? Back towards when the conventions are starting? And then once you get closer to the general election, will arguments be made that it's not fair to put somebody on trial who's a general election candidate so close to the election? So that piece of that, what happens in March when the Supreme Court rules on this, whether that gets punted back to the conventions and the proximity of the general election, tensions could be high in this country if Donald Trump is on trial at one of those critical periods uh, and, and when we get into 2024, you could make an argument uh, other than just sort of like May, June, July. Uh, the rest of it is a critical period. You'll have elections and primaries or you'll be at the convention period or then in the general election near the yeah. debates. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a real, it's a real big question for our, our political system about do you want a candidate who's on the ballot in a courtroom at the exact same time and how do the American people react to that? We might 
see that play out and learn for ourselves. Scott Jennings, Kate Bedingfield, as always, thank you both for joining on this Friday night. Happy New Year to both of you. And by the way, I will be hosting a special CNN presidential town hall next week. Put that on your calendar with Ron DeSantis. Tune in. It will be a critical stop for the Florida governor just days before the Iowa caucuses are set to happen. After that, Nikki Haley and Aaron Burnett will be right after us. Up next for us tonight, though, Russia has launched the largest air attack on Ukraine since it invaded. Putin using nearly every kind of weapon in his arsenal, according to officials. Why now? We'll talk about the timing and the tactics with a former Secretary of Defense. Also, as I mentioned, former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen now blaming AI, artificial intelligence, for a major mistake after passing on bogus cases that ended up in a judge's hands. Hmm, that story coming up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. One of the largest assaults on Ukraine in months now prompting new calls from President Biden for Congress and the international community to step up and help stop Vladimir Putin. With more than 150 Russian missiles and drones being fired on multiple Ukrainian cities across the nation, it killed dozens, injured more. It's an aerial bombardment unlike anything that Ukraine has seen since the beginning of this war, almost two years ago. Schools hit, parks, malls, homes hospitals, including a maternity ward. Ukrainian President Zelensky says that Russia used nearly every type of weapon in its arsenal. Reporter Helena Linz was on the ground in Kiev earlier inside the ruins of a warehouse that was hit. The warehouse was hit, it caught fire. When we arrived here, the smoke was still very visible from the outside. The structure is completely destroyed. The roof of the warehouse is totally destroyed. Just a small sliver of the damage. And I should note that this onslaught comes as Ukraine got its last package of military aid from the United States unless, that is, Congress approves President Biden's latest funding request or comes up with one of its own. The president is warning lawmakers to act tonight without further delay, arguing that this is a reminder that Putin is trying to obliterate Ukraine and there won't just be consequences for Ukraine here. Joining me tonight is Mark Esper, the defense secretary under former President Donald Trump. Secretary Esper, thank you for being here. I wonder what you make and what you read into Putin launching this massive attack as Congress is at a standstill over whether or not there will be more aid coming from the U.S. at least to Ukraine. Yeah, well, good to be with you, Caitlin, first of all. Um, look, I think there are a few reasons why this happened now and, and with regard to the scope and scale by which it happened. You know, first and foremost, Putin had a bad week uh, at the beginning of this week. 
Uh, one of his uh, landing ships was destroyed in Crimea where it was moored. Uh, there are still 30 some sailors unaccounted for. He lost several top end aircraft, SU-34s to Ukrainian air defenses. And, and so it, it kind of hurt him tactically and probably politically back home. So one way to, to get rid of bad news is to present some good news to the Russian people, particularly when uh, you know you're, they are a week away or so from their Christmas, the Russian Orthodox Christmas, which is in about seven, eight days, is to provide good news. And the good news was this onslaught. That's number one. Number two, I think it's a message to the Ukrainian people that uh, Russia still has the ability to uh, strike, to strike powerfully and to strike across the country. It, they, they hit multiple cities, as you mentioned, with a broad range of, of weapons, and, um, and they did so effectively in a number of areas. And then I think the third thing is to show also the Ukrainian people that uh, Russia still has the means, is developing arms and, and munitions at a time when as you noted, uh, continued funding for Ukraine is up in the air here in Washington, D.C. And just a few days ago, uh, Hungary blocked a, an EU package of $50, $55 billion of military aid to Ukraine. So there are a lot of things swirling around right now that I think uh, prompted Putin to make this attack. Yeah, you mentioned there what, what Russia was using here. I mean, they basically appear to be using every weapon that they have, these hypersonic missiles, cruise missiles, air defense ones. Air defense ones. What is the tactic, do you think, here? Is it to overwhelm and confuse the air defenses that Ukraine does have? That is one reason, uh, because Ukraine does have fairly effective air defenses. You know, we provide them over the past year and a half uh, with uh, from from uh, Germany, France, of course, the United States provided Patriot and other weapon systems like Stingers. Uh, and the Patriots have been very effective. They were the ones that have downed both uh, their hypersonic weapons from Russia and recently the SU-34. So a way to defeat air defenses is to overwhelm them, uh, make it so difficult for them to sort through uh, and, and, and destroy and then rearm, reload, that you get some missiles through. And the, the proof is, you know, Russia launched 158 or so weapons, uh, 20, 30% were not destroyed. And those are the ones that made it through and caused the damage that, uh, that you've been reporting on. Well, given they have that capability, if Russia continues uh, what we saw today over the winter, which is what Ukrainian officials have been dreading and warning. I mean, how long can Ukraine make it without another package based on what we know they've said so far about what they need and what, they, what they're running out of? Yeah, and first of all, that's a part of this too, is we're really heading into the dark part of winter in Ukraine. Uh, January is typically the coldest month. So it's another message to the Ukrainian people who are openly tiring of the war. You know, recruiting is a problem right now in Ukraine. Uh, the war's going on for almost two years now. So, um, look, I, I, I think what, what, when you look at Russia, you see that they've actually moved their economy, their economy to a, a war footing. They've dealt with the defense spending. And at the same time, you see in Western capitals a weariness setting in. And you see, again, blocking by Hungary. And this uh, package sits there now being negotiated between uh, the White House and the Senate. Now, we recently gave them a $250 million package. Uh, there are other arms and ammunition and munitions in the stockpile or in the pipeline, I mean, that can move through. Uh, the same with the Europeans. But we, we have not got onto a full footing yet when it comes to having the ammunition uh, and let alone the political support to continue funding um, Ukraine indefinitely. I think most importantly, you know, when, when President Biden hosted President Zelensky here a week ago, it was very important the words he used. You know, for the longest time, he was saying that we would support Ukraine uh, for as long as it takes. And then the words came out recently, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, as long as we can. And that's a big difference, the signaling that's going on there. 
Secretary Usford, we're thinking on the same track, because I had made note of that tonight when we were thinking about, you know, what to get your perspective on, is how that language has changed. And of course, you know, the question of, of what that looks like, you know, if, if your former boss, Donald Trump, is the Republican nominee, if he ends up back in the White House. And speaking of him, while I have you, I, I am curious what you make of the fact of what we've been talking about this week with Trump being removed from the ballot, because you're someone who said, you know, that you former President Trump incited people to come to Washington. You said that he's a threat to democracy. Given that view, what is your position on what these secretaries of state and these the Supreme Court in Colorado, this decision that, that because of that, saying that Trump did incite the insurrection and added fuel to it, that he shouldn't be on the primary ballot? Yeah, look, I'm not a lawyer, but I've been paying close attention to legal experts who have been commenting on this. Um, you know, I always go back to first principles. And, and look, I'm not a supporter of Donald Trump. I've been very clear about that. But I do think uh, in this country, everybody's innocent until proven guilty. And that, that the proving of one's guilt has to go through some type of process, a due process. And I have not seen that yet. And so in my mind, um, you know, it, it, what has happened in Colorado and Maine isn't warranted. And I suspect it will be overturned by the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and again, I say that as somebody who does not want to see Donald Trump on the ticket, let alone uh, in the Oval Office. But that's just kind of my read on it based on what I see right now. If he is back in the Oval Office, do you ever think about who he might pick to take the job that you had, Defense Secretary? I mean, what are your biggest concerns about that? Well, I think that one of the biggest lessons he took out of the last year, his last year in office, is that you have to pick the right people. And for him, uh, the, the litmus test will be about loyalty. Uh, number one, number two, and number three. Competence will probably be number four. Uh, and so I think that's going to be the litmus test for anybody he brings into his administration. He's not going to want people who push back. He's not going to want people who challenge his assumptions or his views or his ideas. He's going to want people to do what he what he wants. And uh, that, that was apparent to me at the time and others uh, since, um, because he's he's already talked about things he wants to do. There were some of the things he talked about doing in the first term that we were able to push him off of. But um, Look, that's my biggest concern is who he will put into office. Secretary Mark Esper, as always, thank you for your time, your expertise and your experience on all of this. Thanks, Caitlin. A strained relationship leading to another testy phone call that happened between President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. More reporting on that in a moment. Also brand new reporting on the hostage talks that are underway after a quick break. Tonight, Israeli officials say that Hamas has, quote, agreed in principle to negotiate a new deal for the release of more than 40 hostages still being held in Gaza tonight. Axios reporting that the agreement, mediated through Qatar, as all of these hostage talks have been, would be in exchange for a month-long pause in the fighting that is underway between the IDF and Hamas in Gaza. We're also learning more about what was being described as a frustrating phone call between Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and President Biden, and just the latest sign of continued tensions between those two leaders, as this war is now set to enter its third month. Joining me now, Barack Ravid, the Axios political reporter who is breaking the news on all of these angles, who is also a CNN political and global affairs analyst. Barack, great to have you here. And what you're hearing from your sources is that Hamas has agreed in principle. I mean, how likely is that? How firm is that in principle agreement? And when could this happen? 
Good evening, Caitlin. Well, I think uh, we will know uh, during this weekend how serious Hamas is about resuming those talks about a possible new uh, deal to secure the release of at least at least 40 hostages, maybe even more, uh, in return for something like a month of pause in the fighting in Gaza and obviously release of Palestinian prisoners. Um, this thing started something like between 24 and 48 hours ago when the Qatari mediators conveyed the message from Hamas to the Israelis saying that Hamas for the first time agrees to go back to the table. Uh, in recent weeks, Hamas said they're not going back to the table before Israel s stops the war and withdraws all of its forces. The Qataris claim now that there's some sort of a positive change in Hamas's attitude towards this issue. Without asking you to guess Hamas's intentions, I mean, given Israel has very much not stopped the war, what do you think or what do your sources think is the reason that Hamas is potentially prepared to come back to the table here then? I think there are several uh, factors here. Uh, the first one is that uh, Hamas is under pressure uh, by both uh, Egypt and Qatar, the mediators, and by the uh, Israeli military operation uh, on the ground. And I think that uh, Hamas for, for some time thought that when the high intensity phase of the war is over, uh, the war will just end. And I think that recently they understood that after the high intensity phase, there is a low intensity phase. And this means the war continues. Therefore, a long pause in the fighting is certainly in their interest. Okay. Well, obviously, if you, if you think that movement could come this weekend, that would be important and incredible news for these families, you know, many of who have just been left with despair for the last several weeks as this has been completely, you know, not really something that's been happening. But I also want to ask you about this reporting that you have on this call that happened, the latest one between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu, which was described to you as frustrating. Why was it so frustrating? Well, it, it wasn't only frustrating, it was, according to U.S. officials, the most difficult phone call between Netanyahu and Biden since the Gaza war started. And there have been, been something like 20 uh, such phone calls. And the main issue in this call was the U.S. request that Israel uh, releases uh, funds, uh, Palestinian tax money, uh, that it's been uh, withholding for several weeks now. And the Biden administration is very concerned that without that money, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank might collapse, which obviously will cause another huge crisis in the region on top of the war in Gaza, on top of tensions with Lebanon, on top of Houthi attacks. And the Biden administration doesn't think this is something that would improve the situation in the region. And Netanyahu basically rejected uh, uh, Biden's uh, request, claiming that he has uh, coalition problems with Biden pushing back and saying, you know, I'm fending off pressures in Congress by Democrats on my policy towards the war in Gaza. Now it's your time to fend off on your radicals in your coalition. Well, that's interesting because when I interviewed Prime Minister Netanyahu, maybe a month or so before October 6th, maybe six weeks before, you know, we were talking about this deal to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. And I asked him, because there are those far right members of his government, and they had said things, you know, like Palestinians didn't have a right to exist. And obviously they wanted concessions for, for Palestinians as part of that deal. And when I asked him, you know, are you gonna have difficulty getting this through? He said, he's the one who makes the ultimate decisions, that it's actually up to him. But I mean, if he's telling President Biden, 
that's not really a decision that he can get through his government. I mean, what does that say about his political standing? Well, obviously, uh, Netanyahu is not in control of his government. He was not in control of his government from day one uh, a year ago. Uh, this government uh, is the most right-wing government Israel has ever had, and it's been it's controlled by its most radical elements. And right now, with the war in Gaza, there are three big issues that Netanyahu is not able to uh, to do anything about uh, because of those. Uh, radicals within his government. It's the Palestinian tax money we just talked about, but it's also the fact that tens of thousands of Palestinian workers from the West Bank are not coming into Israel. And the reason they're not coming into Israel is because those far-right ministers uh, oppose that. And the last thing, which is the most important one, is that Netanyahu still did not conduct any serious discussions within his cabinet about the, the policy on the day after the war in Gaza, how Gaza will look like. And the reason he's not doing this is because those members of his coalition opposed to that too. So where does that leave us? I mean, where do, what does that mean for the, for the next steps here? If that is such a grave concern that the White House has, Netanyahu is saying, I, I, there's nothing I can do about it on top of the other issues. I mean, what does that mean for the future of the Biden-Netanyahu relationship? I think it's, it's going to, uh, uh, the, the tensions are going to grow. And I think this is exactly why at a certain point of this call, Biden just told Netanyahu, you know, you need to figure it out. You need to solve it. And this conversation is over. And he just ended the call, uh, which, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing when we think about how, uh, the relation has been uh, pretty pretty good during this war. Uh, and I think uh, Biden is getting closer and closer to the end of his patience when it comes to Netanyahu. So he just ended the call abruptly? Yes. I, I mean, I, the, I assume the president didn't hang up on him, but I mean, what did you hear about that? I, I just heard that, you know, they they've been discussing this issue of the Palestinian tax revenues for several mm -hmm. minutes. And at a certain point, uh, Biden just told Netanyahu, you know, you need to solve it. You need to figure it out. And this conversation is over. And, and, and that was that. Barack Ravid, as always, reporting is on point. Thank you so much for sharing that with us tonight. Up next, a story that is ever so fitting in the saga that is Donald Trump and his former fixer. Emphasis on the word former there, Michael Cohen, who said in a court filing he used AI to get a bunch of information to his attorney for a case that turned out to be bogus. He says he didn't know that. More on that in a moment. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Sometimes you just can't make it up, truly. President Biden, or excuse me, President Trump's former attorney and his fixer, Michael Cohen, says he didn't realize he was using an artificial intelligence tool that gave him fake legal information, information I should note that he passed on to his attorney, who apparently did not also verify it, but then submitted it as part of a court filing to a judge as a part of Michael Cohen's request to end his supervised release from jail. 
Washington correspondent for New York Magazine, Olivia Nuzzi, joins me now. Uh, Olivia, I just want to make this clear, because what Michael Cohen is trying to do here for people who aren't paying attention to his legal developments is to end his supervised release. Obviously, he served time in prison for campaign finance violations. And his his explanation in this court filing that was unsealed today said, as a non-lawyer, I have not kept up with emerging trends and related risks in legal technology and did not realize that Google Bard was a generative text service that, like ChatGPT, could show citations and descriptions that looked real, but were actually not. (laughs) I mean, it is tempting to view this as just like another Michael Cohen blunder in quite a long career of Michael Cohen blunders, but he's not the first person uh, to to submit false information generated by AI to a court, and I'm sure that he won't be the last. This technology is widely available, um, super accessible, um, and there's no vetting process for the people who use it. So I I suppose um, if you are the type of person inclined to think that you are Googling something, but you are actually inputting it into an AI technology, um, there's no guardrail to to stop you from submitting it to a court. I I mean, I guess it is small print, but there is a little window when you are typing (laughs) on BARD and it says BARD may display inaccurate info, including about people. So double check it's responses. I mean, Michael Cohen, he, he says as a non-lawyer because he's not an attorney anymore after after going to prison, but he, he was an attorney for a long time. Yeah, uh, you know, I decided to consult ChatGPT about this matter, um, just thematically. I thought it might be fun. Um, and I, I decided to start with some questions about you because I, I know you oh, better than I know Michael Cohen. And I, I just wanted to test out how accurate this technology is. So uh, I just started with some basics. I learned that uh, Caitlin Collins is from Prattville, Alabama. That's correct. Uh, Caitlin Collins is a reputable journalist. I agree with that. I think all your viewers here agree with that as well. Uh, but then I posed a more complex question question, which is, uh, if Caitlin Collins is my emergency contact and I have a life or death emergency that requires her intervention at the same time as an Alabama football game, how likely am I to die? Uh, and ChatGPT's response was, it's reasonable to assume that someone like Caitlin Collins would prioritize your well-being in a life or death situation. Um, so this technology isn't perfect. I think that's proof of that. Um, and it was reflected when I asked about Cohen as well. Uh, they said that Cohen was sort of known as a uh, reputable person who's demonstrated legal and strategic acumen in his career. I don't know if that's the overwhelming impression of Michael Cohen's uh, career as Donald Trump's personal lawyer and fixer. Um, and uh, and then uh, the, uh, sorry, the uh, term for when you have false information from an AI is actually called a hallucination. And I think it's important to remember that this technology is just a reflection of the flawed human beings that created it. Uh, and you have to exercise caution, even if you're Michael Cohen and you're not used to doing that. Well, I'm glad Chad GPT answered that question for me. I mean, because on Monday night, like when Alabama was playing Michigan, I don't really know the answer to that. Olivia Nuzzi, as always, thank you. Thank you. Ahead, an important story on my home state. You just heard Olivia mention there, Preble, Alabama. This story, 10 black prisoners are now suing the state of Alabama because they say that they have been forced into what they are calling a modern day form of slavery. Forced to work for fast food chains like McDonald's and Burger King for what they say is next to nothing with a lot of consequences if they don't. We'll be joined by one of the attorneys representing them in that case right after a quick break. It's being called a modern day form of slavery. That is according to a new lawsuit that has been filed by a group of 10 current 
and former prisoners that participated in the Alabama's prison work program. This is a new complaint that alleges that the Alabama governor, Kay Ivey, the attorney general there in the state, Steve Marshall, and the state's board of pardons and paroles, quote, conspired to subvert the operation of Alabama's parole system by forcing prisoners to work for about $2 an hour. Some of the nation's most recognizable fast food brands are named in this suit, which accuses the private companies of knowingly exploiting prison labor. Joining me tonight is one of the attorneys in this case, B.J. Chisholm. So glad to have you here, and thank you for being here. And I should note that all of the people that you're representing here are black. That is underscored in your lawsuit as part of this argument of what they are alleging here. And what is it that they're saying about this work release program? Not just, I mean, this is not just in Alabama. These are in multiple states. But the one in Alabama, what leads you to believe that there's a case here? What are they telling you? Uh, that has caused you to come and represent them? Sure. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. So in Alabama, the uh, Department of Corrections has a work release program that allows um, incarcerated people to to go and work in the community. But actually, folks are being uh, forced to do this and are disciplined if they do not work. And they're working in a variety of areas. As you mentioned, uh, for private companies, they're also working for counties and cities and state agencies. And so this is really a modern version of the infamous convict leasing that Alabama implemented after the Civil War. And we are, through this lawsuit, hoping to shut down that, that program. And for those who are watching, you know, CNN, I should note, has reached out to the governor's Ivy's office, as well as the companies that, that I just mentioned and that you saw on the screen that are named here. We have not heard back from them on this, but your clients, what they're alleging here is that basically not only did they work for little to, to no money, but they also, if they refused to work, they believe they risked severe punishment, including solitary confinement. I mean, what were their concerns here if they didn't go to work? So Alabama's prisons are notoriously violent and a lot of the uh, people who are working are doing so because they fear being in the prisons. And so working outside in the community is one way in which they're able to uh, get away from the violent conditions. Additionally, as you note, the uh, Alabama Department of Corrections actually disciplines people who refuse to work. We have numerous documented instances of people being disciplined for refusing to work, including up to solitary confinement, as you noted. And so what's next here? For the legal case, I mean, what are, it's, this is a civil suit. So what happens next year? What are you expecting? So uh, last week, we filed a motion for preliminary injunction challenging an unconstitutional parole system. Part of the complaint is also challenging a parole system that really traps people into this forced work scheme. So, for example, the people who are working out in the communities and have been doing so for years are still being denied parole. They're also being denied parole at a rate of two to one, um, uh, black, black to white, and people are just being trapped inside of the system. So we are bringing a preliminary injunction to try to stop the constitutional violations that we are seeing in the parole system. Uh, We filed that last week and are hoping to have a hearing in the next uh, month or two. BJ Chisholm, we'll be paying close attention to this year, especially on this show. So please keep us updated on where this goes from here. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. And thank you all so much for joining us tonight and every night since The Source has launched this year. A great moment for us as we close out 2023. I hope you all have a very safe and happy new year. I hope you're all rooting on Alabama on New Year's Day when they play against Michigan. 
I'll see you in 2024 because up next here, CNN is going to take a special look back at 2023 with all the best, all the worst starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.